0: I want you to just imagine with me for a moment that someone from the 1950s showed up today and discovered that we have these handheld devices that have access to all the knowledge in the world, and the first person they meet with such a handheld device is someone who spends all their time on that handheld device looking at cats and dogs and arguing with perfect strangers. That's oftentimes what electronic means and social media have become. New creations in the hands of humans can become new corruptions every time. Just about everything God has given us, humanity has found a way to corrupt. Reminds me of something Vance Hebner said uh, one time. He said, what we're dealing with and what we're reading about today is not run-of-the-mill Wickedness. What we're watching today is a new demonism. And he said that in 1977. Just imagine what has developed or declined or devolved in the last 40 years. A new kind of wickedness. With that in mind, I want to invite your attention to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to speak on when the devil goes down to Georgia. And I want to introduce spiritual warfare to you. And to help you with that, we've got a guest with us on the platform. Now, we can't quite tell if that's Ed Schimmel or Jake Johnson, but um, he does have a connection card in front of him, and I will expect him to fill that out, come to the Lord, and join the church at the end of the uh, service, all right? Not to say that Ed and Jake necessarily need to do that, all right? They already have. But uh, in any case, Uh, We'll be referring to that in the coming uh, weeks. I'm going to begin a series on spiritual warfare this morning, and I must admit to you I'm quite hesitant to do so. I am because about 30 years ago I listened to a series on spiritual warfare by Chuck Swindoll. And he introduced the cost he paid personally for engaging in a series on spiritual warfare. Uh, One example that I recall is that while he was preparing it, someone showed up at the door of his home and physically attacked him. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Back last summer, I began a series on prayer. And I wanted us to pray to victory, to do more than just satisfy ourselves in prayer, as satisfying as it is, but to actually begin to reverse trends and change a community by seeking God. And I've done this in other places. When I was an interim pastor when I worked for the denomination, and uh, I did that as a pastor, and we always saw a neat turn in events. When we began to pray, however, as a result of that series of messages on prayer, and we began to pray in August, I actually saw an intensification in spiritual warfare. Since that time, I have seen more crime, more assaults, more sin, more confusion, and less evangelism than I think I have at any other time in my ministry. In other words, I believe we have touched a nerve in the kingdom of hell and we're being assaulted for it. Now, I'm not one of these who believe there's a demon in every corner. There are some who don't believe there are any demons. There are some that see a demon when they have difficulty filling up their gas tank. So I'm somewhere in between. I used to be someone who didn't see a demon in every corner, but every other corner. I think there may be demons probably in 75% of the corners now. I've changed my mind on that. I think that spiritual warfare is a bit more prominent than I ever imagined. And it's more real, and it's more applicable and timely and relevant and prominent than I think I ever imagined before really is i believe that when we begin to pray as a church family back in august and begin to take the lord seriously at some of the things he said built upon some of the other prayer ministries that preceded me i really think that we hit a nerve and i think we stepped up the battle and hell joined us with it i need to let you know that in beginning this series on spiritual warfare i'm taking it further and you're joining me I don't give up. I'm the son of two very stubborn parents. My grandparents told me. But more than that, that's just not a natural stubbornness. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I hope more than anything else that you will realize the devil has come down to Georgia. And he's looking for lots to steal. And so we're kicking it up a notch. So your prayers and your holiness and your trust in God is going to have to be burgeoning and robust and growing if we're going to make it through and change and transform an entire region. Now, this was not lost on the Apostle Paul. Paul's in prison when he writes this, and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the two years that he is in prison. And so he's got a perfect representation here with the Roman guard of spiritual armor. Now, the guard probably didn't always wear his armor in the prison where Paul was. Paul was not the most dangerous or threatening prisoner, frankly. He's a minister. He's a missionary, in fact. But the presence of a Roman guard who was in the Roman military would remind him of the different implements of the armor that Rome provided for its soldiers, which is um, displayed with uh, Jake or Ed here on the platform, okay? Now, in Ephesians 6, then, Paul has this all in mind when we read, beginning in verse 10, something that is remarkable and very, very encouraging. And I'm going to read down to verse 20, though I'm just going to focus on verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Here, Paul told his readers that God's armor provides victory. Look what it says in beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Jesus provides victory in spiritual warfare with God's armor outlined here in the text, the question I want to ask and answer this morning is, what is it about this armor that can bring victory? Well, there are several things that arise in verses 10 through 13 that answer that question. First, Jesus provides conquering armor in verses 10 and 11. And there are several ways to describe this conquering armor. This conquering armor, the conquering process, is a dependent process. In verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. To be strong is put into the passive tense in the Greek text, which means let an outside influence, an outside force, invade you in order to be strengthened. In other words, God does the strengthening. uh, And that's what God does. In other words, God has never expected us to engage this battle and to win it by our human effort. It's something that God does in us, so it's dependent. But then it is also surpassing. The, the two words here that he uses here, he used first back in chapter 1, verse 19, in the same combination. Be strong, dunamis, in the Lord and in the kratos, the power of His might. Well, He uses dunamis and kratos similarly in Ephesians 1.19 when speaking of the resurrection of Christ. He prays that we will know what is the exceeding greatness of His dunamis, His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His mighty kratos. So a combination of these two terms. In other words, this is the surpassing power of God that was displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand, the promise and the act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ ticked the devil off 2,000 years ago and he's never gotten over it. And it well should. Because it provided enormous, radical victory for every child of God, This is a surpassing power. In other words, you don't get just enough to squeak by. You get surpassing power that was present the day Jesus rose from the grave. Thank God. So it's dependent and it's, it's surpassing. But that's not all. It is supernatural. Verse 11, he says, Take unto you the armor of God. God's own Armor. Now Isaiah imagined God having an armor, figuratively speaking, in Isaiah 59:17, and Paul picks up on this here in the text. The very armor that God lends to you is the armor He Himself has. Now you're going to find that the armor happens to be the character and the attributes of God that He lends, or actually bestows permanently, I should say, on, upon His people. That Jesus secured when He died upon the cross. And so this is supernatural armor. But that's not all. It's also an armor or a conquering of possibility. I don't know if you notice in verses 11 through 13, but there's some repeated terms here. Look with me in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. In other words... There is, there is no cause. There is no predetermined factor. Uh, there, there, there is no plan from God for you to constantly be defeated. I don't know what you're struggling with today, but Jesus Christ is Lord. He is risen, and He can set you free. He can deliver you. He can make a difference in every area of your life. No matter what it is that's making you miserable, today can be a day of victory for you. It is possible. You can leave here no longer groveling and no longer eating the dust and no longer living in misery. You can stand as God intended for you to stand. Now you need to understand, all God has ever ever expected of you on your own is failure. God knows better than to expect victory of you. There's no way in this world that you are a match for what's going on here in this text. All God's ever expected you is defeat and failure when he calls for you to be victorious he's not calling for you to improve your performance and improve your behavior to where you can be victorious what he's calling for is that he's calling for action on the part of the Christ in you to be victorious I'm crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live I live by Human performance, right? By improving my behavior. Oh no, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, can you trust Him? Sure, He loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what God's calling for. So all He's ever expected to view is failure. So when He calls you to walk in holiness and when He calls you to walk in evangelism, when He calls you to walk in victory, He's calling for the Christ in you to act that way as you trust Him. In other words, We do not achieve victory, we receive victory in Him. So victory comes from depending on the God who has never failed. Let me tell you what victory is. Victory consists of people who have always failed depending on the God who never does. I mean, when there's not an earth, God just creates it. When there's a Red Sea to be parted, God divides it. When there's a Goliath that needs to be hushed, David shows up. When the world needs salvation, he sends a son to the cross. When he's tired of his son being in the tomb, he raises him from the dead. He is the God who cannot and has not ever failed, and you meld yourself with him and walk with him by faith, and victory is yours every time when you do. So Jesus provides conquering armor. So your greatest need today is not trying, but trusting. If you can trust him, If you can trust the one virgin-born, sinless life, crucified, raised from the dead, you can have victory. And that's why some of you don't. You're merely religious and church members. You've never been born again with a life change. There's nothing in your life that can be explained apart from good raising and education. Christ has never done anything in you. You need Christ. And so even if you're a new Christian, Even if you strayed from God and are backslid, if you're addicted or you've got any kind of misery in your life, there is victory enough in Jesus for you today if you will depend on him. Today can be a turning point. Let me give you a few examples. Jacob, the patriarch of the Old Testament, was a cheater. Peter had a a temper. David committed adultery. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God, Paul was excessively angry, Gideon was insecure, Miriam gossiped, Martha worried, Thomas doubted, Sarah was impatient, Elijah, he was a mess, he was depressed, Moses stuttered, Zacchaeus was really short, Abraham, Abraham was old, and Lazarus was dead, and yet grace was sufficient every step of the way. Today can be a turning point for you. So Jesus provides conquering armor, and you avail yourself of that whenever you trust him. But that's not all. Not only conquering armor, but crucial armor. You know, the state of Texas has got a lot of interesting laws on the books. For example, in one city, you can't shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel. Look, they thought of everything. Thought of everything. But one law on the books is rather interesting, and that is that a criminal has got to give his victims 24-hour notice before he commits a crime against them. (laughs) I kind of like that, don't you? I don't know if anyone ever has, but what it does is that it adds to the charges. I don't know if it's used very much anymore. But wouldn't it be wonderful if criminals gave law enforcement and potential victims notice 24 hours before they committed a crime? None of them do, nor does the devil, and nor do his demons. And so God has provided us an armor because there happens to be an elite and very effective and experienced enemy. It's very well organized and has quite a successful track record who comes after us with his his army. And if we did not need it, he would have never provided it. Now, this armor then is crucial because of Satan's methods, his mystery, and his minions. Let's look at his methods. Verse 11 says that we should be able to stand by depending on him against the wiles of the devil. Some translations will read schemes. Ephesians 4.14 calls it the plotting of the devil. Uh, It is the Greek word methodios. Don't confuse that with Methodists. Methodists aren't of the devil, okay? The the methods, the methodios of the the devil. One translation translates this expert methods. Now, I want you to imagine, I'm not really very brilliant when it comes to math. That's the uh, subject I struggled with Uh, the most. Uh, Speech class was fine. Math just was very, very difficult. But let's say that I've had three or four thousand years to work on mathematic formulas. Let's say I've had that long. Do you think that after three or four thousand years I might get it and I might develop some skills in mathematics that would uh, make me a rather impressive mathematician? If I've got that long and that much experience, I can do math very well, better than what I can do today if I've got several millenniums, several centuries and thousands of years to perfect it. Satan is not uh, omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent, so usually you deal with the demon, not Satan. And he does not have all power, but he has had millenniums of experience using his forces to mess up the lives of God's people. He's got expert methods. Now, some of them are obvious. I think, for example, terrorism is one example. Crime is another. There are a variety of uh, things that are real obvious. But there are some very subtle methods that he uses. And people that have suffered from these where he's especially prevalent. And I understand the risk I'm taking here at this point, but I want you to consider and think with me. In fact, when I preach and teach, I'm going to treat you like adults. Not like people that have to be shielded from the truth, okay? There are some very subtle things that Satan uses or his demons use to trip up the people of God. In fact, when he trips you up, it's very possible that your first consideration will not be Satan is active and I'm engaged in spiritual warfare. That's how subtle he happens to be. In other words, whenever he does, by a demon, come after you, you probably will not first suspect it is him. And there's some areas of life where that happens to be truth. And I want to use the acrostic based. He's got himself based. One is bitterness. He uses bitterness to trip up people. They, They fall further and further from God. They can't get past it. They can't imagine grace. And it will eat them up. That's why Paul said, forgive the one that has offended you with sexual immorality in your congregation, lest... Satan, take advantage of him, for we are not uh, naive to his schemes. Then, abuse. Let me assure you, if you're enduring any kind of abuse, your loyalty to anyone does not mean you have to stay silent about it. But I'll never forget the first time I saw an abused woman. I walked into the trailer home with my pastor, and she was standing there all five foot two of her, trembling and shaking, because her husband had just beat on her. He was a big bulky man, six foot two, looked like a bodybuilder and he laid his hand on her and I thought to myself, the devil is in this. He is afflicting this poor woman who is so faithful to our church and her little kids and the terror and the fright that was there was certainly demonic and satanic and he's all over that. Also, sexual sin. I've discovered people that are uh, afflicted by demons, oftentimes have engaged in sexual sin. It opens the door for them. And then E, error. Theological, moral, or some other kind, cultural error. He, he, he talks about this in verse 14 of chapter 4. that in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 14, he says, Satan even proposes an alternative gospel, a different gospel. An alternative or different Jesus. An alternative or different Holy Spirit. And no wonder in verse 14, for even Satan himself poses as an angel of light. Satan counterfeits the appearance of God. And so when error comes that way, error comes our way, it's not going to be very obvious. And your first thought may not be, this is demonic. You might say, this really looks very attractive. It looks like light is what it looks like. Now, having said that, I need to wade off into something that, you know, I need to say. Uh, That's why I want you to be very, very, very careful about book series like J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. I don't believe that J.K. Rowling, in writing all the volumes of Harry Potter that she attempted to do, was uh, trying to make everyone demonic or satanic or witchcraft or sorcerers at all. In fact, the research on J.K. Rowling is she is a church-going Christian of the Church of Scotland. Very committed to that. And she actually says in, her, uh, in an interview that the last volume especially elevated Christian themes. And the tombstone of Harry's parents end up quoting 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-six. So I don't think that there's any intention on J.K. Rowling's part to um, advance a satanic agenda, witchcraft, or sorcery. You may be saying, well, all that's make-believe, and that's the problem. It's not that J.K. Rowling was trying to lead the world, the English-speaking world, into Satanism, witchcraft, or sorcery. It's that she assumed a secular mindset about witchcraft and sorcery, which, ladies and gentlemen, are very, very real. And the Scripture speaks of these things, even in the New Testament Galatians 5.19, which we'll look at in just a moment. You might want to turn there, by the way. So the problem is not an intent on the part of J.K. Rowling's uh, uh, part to introduce Satanism, witchcraft, or sorcery that people might take it up. That's not it at all. Understand what I'm saying. The problem with the Harry Potter series, unlike the Chronicles of Narnia, unlike, um, uh, unlike J.R.R. Uh, J. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is that she does not assume a Christian worldview and treats witchcraft and sorcery and other supernatural elements as if they are make-believe and that is precisely what Satan would like us to do. That's the problem. It is a secular mindset. You've got to be extremely careful how you approach such things. Anything that would cause you to take these things with less severity and seriousness could be an opportunity for the enemy. And that worldview was wrong. Now, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were Orthodox Christians, and they were describing the biblical worldview using the Chronicles of Narnia and using the Lord of the Rings. They imagined Middle Earth, in the case of Tolkien, and the Gospel there. And C.S. Lewis imagined Narnia and what the Gospel might look there. That's entirely different. And so there's nothing wrong with fantasy, but you've got to be extremely careful. And one final area that I have found where Satan is especially prominent happens to be in drug use. Anything that impairs the mind. Now back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul said, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness and idolatry. And the next word in verse 20 is what? sorcery. The Greek word behind that word is pharmakeo, which Hippocrates, one of the world's first physicians, translated drugs. Oftentimes, drugs were used in sorcerer activities and witchcraft in the ancient world. And I suspect most of the effect was a combination of both demonic activity that the demons took advantage of, on one hand, and drug use as well. Satan is oftentimes very effective in creating misery in people's life with illicit, illegal drugs and the abuse of prescription drugs and oftentimes even the use of alcohol. That is what we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So you've got to be very, very careful with his methodios. But then you've got to be careful because of his mystery. This armor is crucial because of his mystery. Look what it says in verse number 12. It says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. What Satan does is that he combines with human forces to oppose the people of God and and the mission of God. And that's what makes this so difficult. So often what we do is that we neglect and ignore the acts of demons, and we end up getting angry and bothered with people. And we end up battling people Not discerning that behind that happens to be an enemy that is working. So Satan is hidden. He's not open. Uh, Nearly every time we deal with demons, we'll not immediately suspect demons. And that's why it's so necessary to have a robust, growing walk with Jesus. Every victorious believer has an intense, dependent walk with Jesus without exception. And then his minions in verse 12. Look here. And look at the plurals. And then look at the word against and how often it is repeated here. And look at the human personalities that are implied here in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, that's very earthy, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So these demons appear to be, first of all, ranked, they have a rank. Principalities, powers, rulers, and spiritual hosts. We find this in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9. And Michael showed up with an answer to his prayer much later than what Daniel expected. And he said that the prince of Persia opposed me. The, and, and sometimes that's what demons are called. The, the demon that rules over Persia hindered me. They're ranked demons. And and so I I, I suspect, and I can't prove this, but I suspect that there are demons assigned to every church and every denomination. I suspect demons are assigned to governing entities. They're they're assigned to schools. And I believe they're assigned to individuals and families and marriages as well. So they're ranked demons, and sometimes they use lost people. Look back at chapter 2, verse 2 of Ephesians. Turn back one page. And look what Paul says here. In verse 1, he says, We were dead in trespasses and sins. And in verse 2, In which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So Satan had a royal princehood that he observed before he fell. He's now prince of this world, of the power of the air. And look, he is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Every lost person is afflicted by demons. Now, one, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers said, I suspect that every lost person is demon-possessed. It's not exactly what this says, but it's much closer to the truth than what we've acknowledged. While not every lost person may be demon-possessed, there is a demon spirit that works in every person disobedient to the gospel. And that may be why you're having a hard time buying into Jesus. It could be that a demon is keeping you from him, and you're allowing him to because you're feeding your doubts, or you're feeding your flesh, you're feeding your sin. You don't interpret God in light of the cross and the resurrection, and he'd love you to because he loves you. And he wants to forgive and cancel and make your eternity entirely secure. That's what this God wants to do. And then there's the unbelieving world that he will use. 1 John five nineteen says, The whole world, and listen to how large this is. The whole world, that's, that's a large reference. Listen, the whole world lies under the sway of the devil. And, and so the centers of power in our world are subject to that. I mean, just about every center of power can be subject to that. Uh, Wherever you find a school, or you find a profession, or you find someone with authority and power, there there is demonic activity that can take place there if there is not victory in Jesus brought to bear. So those who are victorious in this battle, in spiritual warfare, they prepare spiritually for it. With the knowledge, they are preparing for spiritual battle. Battle. Every victorious believer has an intense and dependent walk with Jesus Christ. So listen, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you today to walk against demons. I'm urging you to walk with Jesus. That's what makes the difference. So we don't obsess over demons. We obsess over Him and trust Him. And that's where the victory comes. Well, there's a final thing about the armor. And that is, Jesus provides complete armor. In October 18, 1586... Sydney, Philip Sidney was killed in the Netherlands in the Battle of Zetafen. And, and part of the reason was is that while he was wearing his armor, he entered into the battlefield with all of it on, but the leggings of his armor were cumbersome, and he saw William Pelham take him off. He took his off, and an arrow pierced his legs, and he died from infection. He wasn't completely covered. You must understand, You cannot approach the armor of God in a cafeteria or buffet line fashion. You've got to embrace it all. If you leave one area vulnerable, demons will get it. Every time. Something in your life that is not surrendered to Jesus, demons will get. They just want one area, even if it's private, to build a stronghold. Nothing is neutral in your life. Everything is liable. And so look at verse 14. However it is that you treat the truth, however you treat righteousness, your relationship in verse 15 with the gospel and peace and faith, uh, and then verse 17, your knowledge and hope of salvation, and how you interact with the Word of God, and in verse 18, your relationship with God through prayer. Any area that is not under the full reign and rule of Jesus Christ lies open and is an invitation to demonic forces to take advantage of you, and they will get it. They're aggressive, they are hungry, they're not very rational, and they want to make a miserable wreck of lives. And so that verse 13 says this. Look with me in verse uh, chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. The whole armor, not not just the belt of truth, but the breastplate of righteousness and everything else. Not just the breastplate of righteousness, but the foundation of the gospel of peace, the footing, the wearing. Not just that, but the helmet of salvation. And not just that, but the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and the battle cry, which is prayer. Something not surrendered to Jesus, demons will get it. Everything must be given to him. So verse 13, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Take up the whole armor of God. Listen, I need to address a myth. It is important to pray about spiritual warfare, but if all you're doing is praying, you're inviting defeat. Prayer is one thing, but it's not the whole thing. Prayer is not a substitute for the other elements of the armor of God. There is a whole penelope of pieces to the armor. There, there, there's an entire set of equipping factors in the armor of God. And so victory belongs to those who clothe themselves head to toe in the armor of God. The cost of victory then is total trust that entrusts everything to Jesus. Anything less makes you vulnerable. So every thought you think, every beverage you drink, every word you speak, every feeling you entertain, <coughs> any entertainment you enjoy, every, any relationship you pursue, every website you peruse, every day you wake, every evening you sleep, every passion, everything has got to be entrusted to Jesus. And Jesus protects all that we entrust to Him. He will keep that which we've committed unto Him against that day. Everything. Everything a complete armor so what do we do today Well, one we admit spiritual warfare is real and it's getting the best of some of us we just have to be humble and let me say if you're struggling you're in the midst of people who struggle I, I struggle and I don't want you to be a bit embarrassed at all in fact the enemy will tell you that you need to be embarrassed and hide all your struggles not here You need to be no more embarrassed about your struggles here than patients are at a hospital about their sickness. This is not a museum for perfect works of Christian art. This is a hospital for sinners. If you're struggling, you belong here. You've got to admit, there's a struggle. It's real, and I'm really, really struggling and all of my efforts thus far have turned into failure, and I'm really ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed here. Honesty is going to get you a long ways with God and with His people. But the second thing is grow your trust in God's way of dealing with your spiritual warfare. Trust Him more. And if you'll begin to interpret God as the God who slaughtered His Son for you and raised Him from the dead it's coming back for you, you're going to get a long ways down the road. With this, that's who God is. No matter what your experience and your heartaches and disappointments, God is the God who crucifies His Son for you and raises Him from the dead. That is God. When God wanted to be known, at His highest point, He came in Jesus, and that's what He wants you to think about Him. And then, entrust your all to Him. Give Him everything. 1 John 3.18 says, The one that makes it a practice to sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God came that he might destroy the works of the devil. By virtue of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has purchased victory for you. And today and beginning right now, he can destroy the works of the devil in your life. And he invites you to avail yourself of that for free. Can you trust him? If you can trust Him, you can begin a life of victory. If you will trust Him. What do I do? Admit you failed. And then turn away from that. Turn away from self-reliance. Turn away from your own thoughts and your own opinions and own beliefs of that. And embrace Him. The Bible calls that repentance. And then begin to view Him in light of the cross and resurrection. Interpret that God that way. And then come to that God today. And we're going to have staff here at the end of the service in just a moment to receive you as you come.